Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of 18th, 19th and 20th century women writers. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I'm your host, Lauren Burke. This week, we are focusing with red hot laser vision on Eliza Haywood and her story, Phantomina or Love in a Maze. But before we get stuck into what is one of the most sexually charged pieces of writing we've covered on the show, we have an interview. True story. Um, although I'm just in here thinking, Bonnet to Dawn, not usually sexy. Should that be like our new tagline, by the way? Yeah, it should be. But it should be like, but sometimes really sexy at the end. Okay. So like, not usually sexy, but sometimes really sexy. Okay. And then that covers like this week as well. Perfect. We'll take that thought going into uh, next season as well. (laughs) This week, we are going to talk to Dr. Glynis Ridley. Glynis is the chair of the English department at the University of Kentucky. She holds her master's in English language and literature from the University of Edinburgh and her doctorate from Trinity College, Oxford. A lot of Oxford this year. At both, she specialized in the study of the 18th century and her 2004 book, Clara's Grand Tour, Travels with a Rhinoceros in 18th Century Europe, won the Institute of Historical Research Prize. More recently, she published a book called The Discovery of Jean Beret, a story of science, high seas, and the first woman to circumnavigate the globe in 2010. We will be talking about that actually a little bit later on this season. And uh, she is currently working on a book about the Anglo-Irish banking family in the early 19th century and is also co-editing a collection of essays to mark the... uh, Tercentenary? Tercentenary. Never heard that word in my life. Man. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> How many years is that? Tercentenary. <laughs> so many years. 300? The tercentenary of the publication of Robinson Crusoe in 2019. Okay. And a quick spoiler warning before we keep going. This interview will discuss Fantamina or Love in a Maze. So if you haven't read that, I would recommend reading it before listening to the rest of this episode. It's really short, so you can hit pause, go and read it, and then rejoin us to learn some stuff about a great... Not book. It's not a book. It's too short. Short story. Short story. (laughs) Any biography of of Haywood would, I think, have to sort of start with a a disclaimer that um, a lot about her life and circumstances remains a remains a mystery. She wasn't particularly forthcoming, and I'm just looking at the anthology I'm using with my um, 18th century grad class this semester, and it refers to Hayward as elusive. So, um, <laughs> so there's there's not a lot of details known. Uh, I mean, I guess the conventional biography is that she was. You know, probably born into modest circumstances in 1693 in London as uh, Eliza Fowler. And depending on your source, she likely sort of married in her late teens. Um, And it's been suggested that it was probably the unhappiness of her marriage, maybe her husband's sort of debts, gambling debts, that was the making of her. She seems to have used writing as a way to support herself, make herself independent of her husband and escape him and support herself and her two children. Um, she was associated with the, the stage. She uh, appeared as an actress, but it was really, um, I think, 1719 at the age of 26 when she published one of the most popular romantic novels of its time, and this was called Love in Excess. And it was really the beginning of a writing career that would see her become a prolific author of over 70 titles, 70 and counting. I mean, some things are are, are being sort of reattributed to to her that were previously, um, you know, previously by Anonymous. And uh, a lot of her work explores women's roles in society, which is to say the roles allowed to women at the time by um, by men. And uh, and then we know that she died in 1756 and 
she's buried in St. Margaret's Church, which is not far from Westminster Abbey. So she didn't quite make Poets Corner in Westminster Abbey, but she's uh, she's physically not, not far from it. Yes. <laughs> was she publishing anonymously then, or was she publishing under her own name? Many of Hayward's works were published anonymously, and this was perfectly usual for women writers of the the time. Um, I mean, I I don't have to tell your listeners interested in Jane Austen or the Brontes that, um, and a number of other women writers that women often often published anonymously to avoid um, scandal. Or in the mid nineteenth century, of course, the Brontes used male pseudonyms. Um, we were just discussing George Eliot a little a little while ago, somebody else using a male pseudonym. Um, for me, the strange thing is we like to think all this is, has changed, but then I was recently watching a program about, um, you know, the making of J.K. Rowling as, a, mm-hmm. as an author, and of course, uh, she was advised by her publisher that her first Harry Potter novel would have wider appeal if boys didn't see a woman, woman's name attached to it. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a practice that's, that's sadly still going on today. Yeah, it definitely is. I actually was talking about, yeah, Rowling and then also um, Nora Roberts, who writes, you know, trade romance. Oh, yes. Yeah. And then she's got her J.D. Robb line. Yes. Which is more, yeah, thriller-esque. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's sad, but true. Yeah, and I, I think, um, yeah, so so many. Well, and of course, Ro- Rowling, when she writes, she's she's used other other names. She writes under other pen mm. names, um, and uh, and sort of writing us. Uh, is it Galbraith? Her other pen name. I mean, she also writes mm-hmm. under. You'd think it was a sort of male um, male writer. Mm-hmm. Well, literature is written by men, isn't it? <laughs> Well, not all literature. We've got the prolific Eliza Hayward, certainly. (laughs) Good. Yes. Excellent. (laughs) Now, um, it seems like she was really, I mean, she was really active. Like, what was the female spectator? Because she's not only writing books, right? That's 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 true. I mean, it is a very prolific career, as I said, over over seventy titles. And um, I think one of the most most interesting is the female spectator. Let me let me kind of back up to um, seventeen eleven, seventeen twelve, when one of the most widely read things among among educated men was this daily publication called The Spectator, and mm-hmm. it was written by a widely respected pair of male writers, Joseph Addison and, and Richard Steele. But it was as you might imagine, very um, male-oriented. We, we see things through, through the perspective of Mr. Spectator. So in the 1740s, Eliza Haywood had some fun with the idea of the different perspectives on events that might be offered by a female spectator. And so from 1744 to 46, the female spectator came out. Um, the idea is a very common one in Eliza Haywood's works. Um, it's an exploration of the different roles women can occupy in her society. So in The Female Spectator, you have four main characters, four women. There's the female spectator herself. There's the character who's a gentleman's wife. There's a widow. And there's also the daughter of a wealthy merchant. And if you've you know, ever seen a film or a TV show centered on the connections between a group of differently situated women navigating mm-hmm. their way in the world, then you get the idea behind the female spectator. It's the different perspectives that all these different women offer on events and the different ways that they relate to each other and that they relate to current events in virtue of their, you know, in virtue of their respective positions. That sounds really cool. I I feel like there needs to be an adaptation of this, actually. <laughs> I would watch this TV show. Well, it's um the the papers are really uh the papers are really diverse in the Female Spectator. There mm-hmm. um there are a number of anthologies of the Female Spectator available, but it's been pointed out that the anthologies often represent the kind of interests of the you know the scholar doing the anthologizing. When you look at the Female Spectator mm-hmm. as a whole, there are some papers that actually very closely um, track original papers in Addison and Steele's Spectator and are obviously, what's interesting to me about that is they seem to rely on 
their audience having a knowledge of the original to see how the female spectator is parodying oh. it or, or playing with it. Um, I think there's one that's an imaginary journey to a, a topsy-turvy land. I think I've got that correct. There are, you know, they're, 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 they're much more various than some of the selections you might read um, from the female spectator would, would initially suggest. It's oh, very interesting. Okay. So I'm like still, I'm just, my brain is still trying to wrap around like 70 novels as well. <laughs> I know it, it suggests, um, it suggests a very high, high rate of output. We were just talking about, you know, meeting publishing deadlines, but um, what I find incredible about um, and admirable about thinking about a number of writers who were so prolific is that they just, you know, I, I keep telling myself they should be my model. They just got on with it. They, yeah. they you know, they, they did it and they, they hit those deadlines. And was she, I mean, we know we don't, don't know a ton about her life, but was she cranking these out because she really needed the money? Like, or, or was she also, I mean, this is, I know it's very speculative, but like she loving mm -hmm. writing as well. Because it sounds like she's someone that really loves writing. I I think and as you say it is it is speculative because we don't really um we don't really know but I I think that um I think it's probably safe to say that she loved the relative independence that writing gave her um what one of the things about so many of her works exploring the different positions that women can um occupy in society the different roles that are available to them, both those roles that are seen as respectable and those that are seen as less um, as less respectable, is that there are <laughs> there are no respectable ways for a woman to earn money independently. Um, you know what what is it that um, what is it that Eleanor Dashwood says in Sense and Sensibility? She says she wishes she was a a man and she could sort of earn earn money she could she could actually sort of make a um, make a living very few roles available to um, women and even though for a woman to be a writer wasn't considered respectable at the time when um, Hayward was doing it in the in the first half of the 18th century it it did give her it did give her independence um, it wasn't one of those unrespectable professions in the sense of, I mean, a, a lot of people associated thought actresses and women writers were sort of little better than, than prostitutes. But Haywood wasn't that. She was making a, she was making a living independently as a, as a woman writer and having the ability to earn money and to determine how that was spent, um, including for the upkeep of, of herself and her at least two children we, we know about. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, I think that must have been the primary driver for her in this, this prolific output. Now, do you have a favorite Haywood anecdote? <laughs> um, well, unfortunately, because of all the uncertainties around her biography, I would I would say no. It's not like I can say, you know, we have her diary pointing right. out that she said this witty thing at a at a particular time. Um, perhaps I could say something more more general in relation to that, in terms of sort of Haywood um, anecdotes, because um, I, I mean, really, I feel lucky to be able to read her a, a, a tool that we can we can point your listeners to works of Haywoods that they might want to um, might want to read because it used to be the case that studying the early novel was all about reading um, male authors in in my field of English studies the classic text on this was a book written all the way back in 1957 by a scholar called Ian Watt and it was called The Rise of the Novel and what traced the history of the English novel, the development of the novel through the 18th century by focusing exclusively on five male authors. So I guess if you'd asked oh, him, wow. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd asked him how Jane Austen came about, I suppose he would have said she was indebted to this male 
tradition because he didn't he didn't even countenance the female tradition. Um, back in 1986, uh, a, an academic called Jane Spencer sort of riffed on this idea of what's rise of the novel, and Jane Spencer produced the rise of the woman novelist. And um, in terms of a Hayward anecdote, full disclaimer, Jane Spencer was one of my professors when I was an undergraduate. And uh, mm-hmm. and I took a class from her when The Rise of the Woman Novelist had, had just been published. And it, it's impossible to... Um, it's impossible to overstate the sort of academic buzz that this generated because suddenly Jane Spencer was talking about um, was talking about these sort of late 17th, early 18th century female writers who had had very little coverage. Afra Bain, Della Riviere Manley, Jane Barker, also Eliza Haywood. And because that text was so well regarded, Jane Spencer's Rise of the Woman novelist, it meant that suddenly all the, the women writers I've mentioned started appearing on college syllabuses. Um, students suddenly were introduced to them. Those students moved through the system, <laughs> went into the academy in their turn. Now you can take whole courses on women writers of the period. There are anthologies of women writers of the period. It would be a very strange course now on the history of the novel that didn't spend a lot of its time talking about the contribution of women writers, Eliza Haywood and all of her contemporaries. So in terms of a Haywood anecdote, I'm sorry, that's fairly kind of long-winded, but it's kind of, it's interesting for me. I look at, I look at what had been standard, Ian Watts, the writer, of the mm-hmm. novel, and then I look at Jane Spencer's *The Rise of the Woman Novelist*, and you see how academic thinking about all of this has changed. Those women writers were always there; it was just nobody had thought to look for them or thought that they merited much attention. Right. And I just think it's very exciting now. Haywards in Haywards in the anthology I'm going to be using with my my class this um, this fall, as so many other sort of women writers. But the fact is they wouldn't be there unless Jane Spencer or somebody like her had thought to introduce them to a wider world and and people have started to sort of take notice and say yes these these writers are are worth um, worth reading and now of course. Um, it, it used to be the case unless you had access to a research library, you couldn't you couldn't see the originals, you couldn't access copies of certain texts. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, um, you can just sort of your your listeners would be able to sort of key in Eliza Haywood, Fantamina, and sort of see a copy online, a link provided right. to a good copy at a university uh, university library. So it's amazing having the the ability to do that. I am um, also. I just wrote down Jane Spencer. <laughs> I'm going to track down a copy of that book. Yeah, the rise of the woman novelist. Uh, really, um, it's such a. It's become such a foundational kind of text really um mm-hmm. in in english studies for anybody teaching kind of the um the the history of the novel um so um yeah i'd really i'd really recommend it and i think it's very very accessible in that anthology do you have fantamina by we, we, we do have fantamina and uh for for anyone wondering what i'm using this is uh just the broad view anthology of British literature, and it's the volume on the restoration and the 18th century. They've got the full um, full text of Fantamina in there because it's uh, it's relatively short. I think in the anthology, it's just under 30 pages. But I know that it is something that's available um, on online. I was I was checking that out. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I I just find it a fascinating um, text, and when I've taught it before, students have really students have really responded to it, and they've responded to how different it is to what they'd imagined might be written by a woman at this point in at this mm-hmm. point in in history. Um, I mean, it, it it came out in 1725. Um, the plot is 
really interesting. It's a, it centers on a young woman and she's a, n- not apparently under the control of a parent or a guardian at the opening of the, the novella, I guess. Um, she obviously has access to money and we open at the theater and in the 18th century theater, it would be very unusual if you went there to actually sort of see a play. You really went there to see other people and to be mm. seen by them. And what happens to um, the the female protagonist of, of Fantomina is that she notices at the theater that all of the men are paying attention to um, to the prostitutes. And she wonders what the men are saying to the prostitutes and she wonders how differently men would behave to her if she was dressed like that. How would they address her? How would they behave towards her? So she decides that she's going to try this out and she's going to dress as a prostitute and she wants to see how differently the men sort of respond um, to her. And it's the first of four disguises that she she adopts um, in the course of the novella. She not only uh, decks herself out as a prostitute, she adopts the role of a servant, she adopts the role of a widow, and she adopts the role of a sort of mysterious woman of quality. So just the female mm. spectator sort of got its readers thinking about the different perspectives women would have if they occupied different roles in society. Fantamina is playing with the same idea, but here Fantamina is playing with the idea not only of what it's like being being a woman in these different roles, but how do men treat women differently Mm -hmm. when they just look at a woman and they say, that's a prostitute, that's a widow, that's a young heiress, that's a, that's a servant. Um, one of the, ca- the, the catch here is that, is that the, the sort of titular character is pursuing the same man all the time, Beau Plaisir. Okay. Um, at he, you know, we, we've got to suspend disbelief. He's much more of a plot device because he doesn't believe that he's sleeping with the same woman and he doesn't realize he's sleeping with the same woman, though she's in, in four different disguises. But um, the, the, I think Hayward's got a very interesting idea in identifying for her readers the fact that men behave differently to women according to how they perceive them and the stereotypes they have of women who have these different labels attached to them, servant, widow, young heiress, prostitute. And um, certainly the, the fascinating discussion last time I I taught this, um, students were talking about issues around uh, issues around consent does the young woman who's sort of adopting all of these different roles is she really in a position to um give consent when she first sleeps with Beau Plaisir because she really doesn't know what she's getting into because we're told she's very innocent she was raised in the country she doesn't really quite know she's confused about her own She's confused about her own feelings. So um, students were very quick to, you know, pick up on that aspect of the text and talk about it. Um, I think everybody in the uh, in the group who'd who'd read it was just astonished that this idea would occur to Haywood as a writer mm-hmm. back in the early 18th century. I mean, obviously we're a obviously we're a world removed from. Jane Austen in in Pride and Prejudice, it's it's horrifying that Lydia Bennett has run off with with Wickham. She's potentially going to be ruined. But here, kind of, you know, just under a hundred years, kind of uh, earlier, Haywood is actually Haywood gives us a heroine who decides she'd like to play the role of a prostitute, play the role of a, a ruined. Um, woman she she gives us a she gives us a female character who who's actively in pursuit of a man um it, it's 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 a very surprising text and i think it's possible to have a 
possible to have a series of very good discussions as a result of reading it. I have read that uh, the critic William Warner say that, like, Haywood was the first writer of disposable works of fiction. So, yeah, what do you think of that? I was like, hmm, interesting, interesting. No, no. I mean, in a in a word, no. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, there's, there's, there's so much I could say about this. Just just, just stop me when I thoroughly pulled this idea oh, apart because sure. it just drives me. It just drives me mad that, that anybody would say that. Um, I mean, to, to begin with, um, Warner's assumption seems to be that there are writers whose aim is to produce permanent works of literature but that just doesn't um hold water i mean if if we take some of the cornerstones of western literature just to show how false the idea of of writers setting out to write permanent works um is let's go all the way back to uh to homer um you know the iliad and the odyssey um which you know it's now accepted that homer wasn't a, an individual but a group of of individuals working in a trans- tradition of transmitting epic poetry orally so um sections of it would be recited on demand at feasts and which section was recited would be according to the preference of of the host no idea there of writing great literature down so one of the cornerstones of the western western canon was a was originally a sort of oral um oral work of no fixed form but was improvised by by individual sort of reciters in places or um shakespeare you can't get more sort of central to this idea of permanent works of literature except we have no complete manuscript of any play in Shakespeare's hand signed off sort of William Shakespeare. There's no sort of posterity in his works or of writing something permanent. We only have, we only know Shakespeare's works as we do because two of his friends, Hemming and Condal, collected together all they all they knew, all they could lay their hands on texts of his plays and brought out this thing which is known as the first folio in 1623, but Shakespeare himself never collected his plays or, or set them down. So this idea of permanent works of literature seems to me to be um seems to me to be nonsense. Now if we think about Hayward and all of her contemporaries, it's true that they worked in a culture with an insatiable appetite for print which I think means that all print production at the time was seen as inherently disposable. Certainly all novels were at the time. It, it's why it's why sort of many great libraries from the period are often rather light on novels because novels were regarded as inherently um, inherently disposable. So I think to single Haywood out and suggest that somehow she was conscious of the fact that she was writing deliberate she was writing disposable fiction. She was deliberately writing disposable fiction. Just ignores what had been happening for centuries previously and i think it also ignores the realities of of you know publication uh among haywood's contemporaries because um because there was such a huge appetite for print culture at the time that a lot of authors were coming to market with a variety of works, fictions and non-fictions. And I don't think they had any idea of writing permanent works of literature. Their concern was getting getting into print and then, you know, what would happen would would happen. I think that's a great answer. I <laughs> I just, I, I remember like reading that, it just really jumped out to me because I was like, oh, that's, you know, how to suppress women's writing like 101 right exactly <laughs> exactly it's really saying it's you, you're totally right because from the from the get go that says well these women were these women were just they were producing very ephemeral stuff it mm-hmm. wasn't worth it wasn't worth 
uh, keeping. Uh, and so mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's just such a, it's just such a bizarre, bizarre assertion. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. I, it's, it's funny. I mean, it comes up obviously time and time again on this show. What, some of the stuff I've been like looking at too this week is going back to Agatha Christie, who also had like crazy output, right? And yes. she also was just like, well, I'm just a hobbyist. And I'm like, are you though? <laughs> don't think that's quite true. No, I, I don't think so. Because when we, when we start talking about a certain level of output, you're talking about mm-hmm. somebody who has to be incredibly disciplined in terms of their, right. um, in terms of their writing. And then it's not just a then it's not just a hobby. Then you are thinking about it very much as a business, and this is what you do. And you get up and you write between certain certain times, and you have to be incredibly disciplined about doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like everyone we've really tackled on this show was they were working. <laughs> yes. They were- they were working writers, and it's it's interesting that idea of like permanent literature, and yeah, like. As a writer, I yeah, I never have that like in my head. I'm just trying to like do a job and do it well. Exactly, and uh, and I I think particularly in in Hayward's um, age, it's you can't overstate just the appetite for new printed um, printed material. Um, mm-hmm. uh, if, if you if you sort of look in um, in sort of kind of research collections in in libraries which contain a lot of material from the period, it's very common to take a book down and think you're taking down a single book. And what you will be taking down is a, a lot of pamphlets actually bound together mm-hmm. as a, a book. Um, because as a grad student, I worked on a library cataloging project. I think the most number of pamphlets I ever saw bound together in a single volume was was just over 70 pamphlets. This was on a single oh, kind of single political issue of the day but it's it's kind of a it's it's the nearest you can get to a sort of precursor to twitter and social media where everything's very immediate we're talking about people you know a wide spectrum of writers who were concerned about a particular political or social issue somebody would put out a two or four page pamphlet stating what they thought about it the minute somebody who disagreed with them or supported them read it they wanted to get their own ideas into print what it tells us about um what it tells us about the sort of printing infrastructure that was that was supporting that is is really surprising things were getting into print very um very quickly pamphlet wars on a variety of political social issues at the time on a variety of controversies the back and forth of uh, the back and forth in terms of the exchange of ideas would really surprise us in terms of how rapid it was. It's as rapid as you can get in an age before kind of, you know, digital and kind of social media. But it's still people trying to respond as near in real time and in a sort of public medium as they can to to one another in this sort of marketplace of marketplace of ideas. And again, all of that you would say is pretty you know, people had no idea there of writing for posterity. They just wanted to they just wanted to vent, they just wanted to get their ideas out in the open in the same way as people might, you know, post to a thread on a particular on a particular sort of subject online today. All right. Not book. Not book. Not book. <laughs> not book. <laughs> Things are either books or, or not, not books. <laughs> and we are back. And we're going to jump right into our short story not or book. not book discussion. Yeah. of uh, Phantomina. And if you haven't read that short story, if you didn't heed just, my warning. Yeah, if you didn't, if you didn't listen to Miss Hannah. All right, I'm just going to give you the Wikipedia summary. How about that? I'm not going to put that much effort into it. 
So Fantamina or Love in a Maze, which I just feel like should be the title of Lady Gaga's next album, um, is a novel. Is a novel, Wikipedia? It's a not a novel. It's not a novel. <laughs> it's not. It's so, it's just like a flash fiction. It's a flash fiction. It's maybe it's not. Is it less story. than a thousand? Maybe it's more than a thousand words. If it's more than a thousand words, it's not a flash fiction. It's not a novella. <laughs> it's very short. It's very a piece. Short. It's a piece. It's just a little so we're, bit. We're correcting this now in Wikipedia. It's a piece <laughs> by Eliza Haywood. Okay, they got that right. It was published in 1725. That is also correct. In it, the protagonist disguises herself as four different women in her efforts to understand how a man may interact with each individual persona. Okay, all right. Decent summary, Wikipedia. Can I also just add that this is an example of amatory fiction, which is like a romantic or sexy time piece of prose written between 1600, maybe mid 1700s, uh, mainly written and read by women, writers like Eliza Haywood, and Afra Ben, who's come up on the show a couple times, are some of the most prominent in this category. And they sort of pave the way for the, like the romance writers of the world. It's my understanding of amatory fiction. I could be totally wrong, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> don't come to us for the hard facts. No, don't, no. please. I, can I just say that in that interview, I was so glad that Glynis made the connection between Fantamina and... Jane Austen, of course, uh, but specifically because she brings Lydia Bennett into the mix. When Mm -hmm. I was reading Fantamina, I was just thinking like again and again of that situation and of just like this young woman who she's just following her curiosity regardless of the situations it's going to put her in. And then she deals with the consequences of that, right? And I just kept thinking, especially when you get to the end of the piece, like, who gets off lighter, Fantamina or Lydia Bennett? I mean, I'm going to say Fantamina for sure. And the reason for that is because in the end, our dear girl ends up in a nunnery in France, which I think is actually better than ending up, you know, like Lydia with Wickham and probably syphilis. Yeah. And just like never, it's just like, it does doesn't sound like a secure or steady or like particularly peaceful life living with him. So no, no. Yeah, no. And also, can I say this? Um, in a piece by the Mary Sue about amatory fiction and Fantamina, which I published, which I posted in our Facebook group, um, the author talks about how during this time period, um, like sexy time nonfiction was very popular as well. So instead of killing off Fantamina, Eliza Haywood it has her sent off to this nunnery in France. So it's possible that she be she could be continuing like her sexy time adventures. That's kind of what I wanted from the end of it. Well, I was like, she should have written do- a sequel. I would, yeah, if the ending wasn't so. You know, just sudden and a bit crappy <laughs> I was like I was so in all the way reading this I was like I could I could make a film out of this easy right give me 10 pounds a camera you phone were, you were into it yeah I was really into it um but it is complicated so the other thing mm-hmm. that I was really glad that came up in the interview with Glynis was just like the subject of consent because yeah. I think that really is, um, it's at the heart of the piece of writing. But then also kind of, I think that's the thing that we react to as readers in the 21st century. It becomes all about that consent. Yeah. And uh, Glynis described Beau Plaisir, Beau Plaisir, Beau Plaisir, yeah. Yeah. the man, the dude, mm-hmm. um, as being like a plot point more than being a character. So... He's not fleshed out in the way that we're used to, because if he had been, he'd have seen through all of these like very thin disguises. You know, it's like disguise Mm -hmm. one, she changes her hair. Disguise two, she puts on a funny accent. Disguise three, she is a dark room. So, you know, it's, there's kind of like a, a suspension of disbelief going on with him. But then I do also think he brings up like another angle of the consent conversation. I think, 
repeatedly being tricked into sleeping with someone whose identity you don't actually know. Like, if that role was reversed and he was disguising himself as multiple different men to repeatedly sleep with her, we react to that in a very specific way, right? And you'd be like, she cannot consent to him if she is not aware of the full situation. Totally. And he's lying to her. And so she's doing that to him. And I think by doing that, Hayward is treating a, a male character in a piece of fiction in a way that female characters are often treated in novels again and again and again as just this one-dimensional, dim-witted, and like, at the end of it, just unable to actually give consent character. Like, it yeah. doesn't matter. Like, that's taken away from him. And I think it's, yeah, I just think it's interesting that Hayward is doing that to him and making Bantamine, like, very like active at least after the initial time they're together yeah exactly it's really interesting that you have this character a female character who's so driven right she is so it's like the whole story is driven by her and her sexuality and um he isn't even really a character you don't really know much about this guy right he's simply a device i mean also his name does directly translate to beautiful pleasure like he is just beautiful pleasure he's just that's a, all he's just a willy with legs yeah piece of meat <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> now all of that said uh Fantamina's very first sexual encounter with him does make me feel like super uncomfortable <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. there's so much happening in this piece of writing like this one paragraph and I kept thinking to myself when I was reading it I was like am I being sensitive is this right? Right. Right. And so I read it again and again and again. And so I have pulled the piece of writing. Mm -hmm. I've pulled the extract. Uh, Lauren, do you want to read this? Not really, but (laughs) (laughs) you do this to me all the time. It was in vain she would have retracted the encouragement she had given. In vain she endeavored to delay till the next meeting, the fulfillment of his wishes. She had now gone too far to retreat. He was bold. He was resolute. She fearful, confused, altogether unprepared to resist such encounters and and rendered more so by the extreme liking she had to him. Shocked, however, at the apprehension of really losing her honor, she struggled all she could, and she was going to reveal the whole secret of her name and her quality when the thoughts of the liberty he had taken with her and those he still continued to prosecute prevented her with representing the danger of being exposed and the whole affair made a theme for public ridicule. So I think a couple of things just to highlight in that, right? So it's, she she feels like it's pointless to kind of try and put a stop to it now because she's been mm-hmm. encouraging him all night so mm-hmm. obviously you can't retract consent once it's been given she's implied to him that she's interested so she can't kind of go away from that it's also worth considering that the first time they meet in this setting she is dressed like a prostitute she's not right. dressed like in her courtly gear but even that like even then like as a sex worker nowadays we'd be like of course sex workers can don't have to have sex with people like of course they don't but like this is the 18th century and so attitudes are going to be different to that um Mm -hmm. she's scared uh she likes him she is worried about what people are gonna say she's worried about her reputation she's worried about all of these things she's she's so young like she is a virgin and i just think you know there's that line in there and it says she struggled all she could, but nothing mm-hmm. she says stops him. Even when she says to him, like, I'm a virgin, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not right. sure about this. And it still happens. And I think the fact that consent is something that we're still defining and discussing and arguing about. And then we've got this piece of writing that could, like, I mean, if you change the words in there, that could be someone talking about a night out in court in a testimony. Yeah. Right? And like that, yeah, that really surprised me. I was really struck by how authentic Hayward is in this moment because mm-hmm. it is an emotional mess and it is complicated. And I really liked that our heroine is also caught up in all of that. And the ideas are, they're kind of like too big for her. And you get a sense again and again through the piece 
that she is moving forward with an intent, like she's got a purpose, but she maybe doesn't understand the bigger picture. So the first time she goes after him and she's, you know, in her costume, she doesn't really understand what the consequences are. With that in mind, like the bigger picture thing, there's this line and it says, she had the discernment to foresee and avoid all those ills which might attend the loss of her reputation, but was wholly blind to those of the ruin of her virtue and having managed her affairs as to secure the one grew perfectly easy with the remembrance that she had forfeited the other. And again, like, that's just, I don't know why. It just, like, she's so worried about what people think about her and what people are perceiving that she's not really thinking about herself. Mm-hmm. And what's happening to her? Well, she kind of can't, can she, right? Because herself as a virgin, as a as a lady, mm-hmm. like she can't have those, like she actually can't have those thoughts. Yeah. And so she's like, in order to have these thoughts, in order to pursue this man, I have to be a prostitute. Like I have to go the other way. Mm-hmm. But she's not prepared emotionally, mentally, you know, for that and for those consequences, it, it's women are trapped. No, ma- it's like no matter what she does, she's trapped in a role, and she is bound by like what, how others see her. Yeah, it feels very like public versus private, right? And yeah. she's performing mm-hmm. not just to him, but to everyone else. And so the disguises yeah. aren't just that they aren't just disguises to trick him; they are disguises to trick everybody. So at the start of the book, obviously, she is this young innocent and then she loses that innocence and she becomes fallen woman. And then she kind of takes a hold of that in a way that is really unexpected. And it becomes this uh, almost like revenge narrative. Because it's kind of wacky. Yeah. yeah. Well, she goes out of her way to hunt him down and literally shag him again and again and again and again. And she repeatedly says that she is in love with him. But then I really like, I mean, is she in love with him? Like, is it love? Mm. Because there's an element of possession there and of taking something like at any cost. And again, there's uh, a quote, which I think speaks a lot to like the motivations behind the piece. Uh, There were a few comments in the Facebook group that said it felt really pornographic read like reading this which I didn't Mm -hmm. get or take from it at all and I felt like it was a shame that maybe some of these more like insightful moments in the story are maybe lost because it is quite absurd Mm -hmm. and it is quite like well it's talking about a woman enjoying having sex so like maybe that's the shocking thing but I didn't personally think it was that graphic so no no I don't think it's that graphic um I really enjoyed this quote Possession naturally abates the vigour of desire and I should have had at best but a cold, insipid, husband-like lover in my arms. But by these arts of passing on him as a new mistress whenever the ardour, which alone makes love a blessing, begins to diminish for the former one, I have him always raving, wild, impatient, longing, dying. Oh, that all neglected wives and fond abandoned nymphs would take this method. Men would be caught in their own snare and have no cause to scorn our easy, weeping, wailing sex. Great line. So good. It's Mm -hmm. so good. There's a lot of beautiful, beautiful quotes in this piece. Yeah. And yeah, I think pornographic wouldn't be the right word. It's just explicit about a woman enjoying and wanting sex. And I think that just goes against the grain of what we think. And not just sex. happening or... Raving, wild, impatient, longing, dying sex. Like, yes. as, you know, like, if she's going to have it, she wants the good stuff. And yes. I loved that. <laughs> and when she describes him as being a husband-like lover as well, mm-hmm. you know, it's like marriage is the death of of what she wants. And so right. she's she doesn't... So she's going about it and, like, yeah, taking it. I don't know. Like, I just... I was so excited by it. I was just like, this is unlike anything we've read from this period i really liked it and it you know it should we should see more of this maybe there i mean so there is more of this it just hasn't endured in the same way right Right. and i think we could have like a whole conversation about what bits of women's writing are being preserved um and what is being seen as well what we talked about in the interview as 
disposable, right? That was the, yes. the term. Yeah. Yes. I think we could craft several episodes or a whole season on like what is disposable. Um especially in terms of like romance writing about romance and writing about sex. Mm-hmm. I think it's funny as well thinking about women's writing as being disposable because not only is the content matter that they're writing about um is disposable, but when you think about how many women writers were diarists and letter writers like private or like just this kind of oh I'm just communicating or I'm just writing this letter and that's not literature right Mm -hmm. in bunny ears that's you know that's just a thing and you throw it away and then you have writers like Frances Burney and maybe her novels are going out of fashion but then you've got the mastectomy letter and it's so powerful and she has like you know she sewed the doctor's report to it and it was annotated and then she sent that to her sister and then what you end up with is this historically super important first person account of a surgery that most people nowadays aren't awake for and will Mm -hmm. never experience right like is that is that disposable it was you know (laughs) it's just like a piece of paper with like another piece of paper stitched to it tossed into the wind for someone to read I feel like this is that could be a whole thesis of like a new season of Bonnet to Dawn. Like, is this disposable? Why yeah. would you think this is disposable? Why would you dismiss this? Um, why would you dismiss writing about romance or sex or love? I think that that is a huge question that I have. I mean, I think people, you know, they dismiss romance writing as a genre today. That's like nothing has changed there. Yeah. Which is strange because in pieces of fiction, which is strange because in that genre, we're talking about the same things that we're talking about with this story in Fanamina, like issues of consent and women's roles and women desiring, you know, love and sex. And why is that not important? But also, it's funny like the first yes. time, so there's this moment, and she, um, she's gone out of, gone out of. She's like, oh, I couldn't possibly take him to my aunt's house. I will have to, and she hires a house, and she hires some servants, and then she mm-hmm. lays on dinner for him because she doesn't know what else to do because she is like a young woman from court who's never been alone with a man in her life, and then she starts laying yeah. on this elaborate supper, and she's like, oh yeah, we'll have this nice dinner, and he sat there thinking wow, this prostitute is going to be well expensive. <laughs> and that's all he can think about. It it really puts me in the frame of like harlots too. If you guys enjoy harlots, then maybe check out Eliza Haywood's writing. Because it's just funny and sexy and just kind of over the top and out there. I was thinking of this as well. It's just being kind of a kind of like 18th century pretty woman maybe scenario but then (laughs) but then she gets pregnant and gets sent to the nunnery (laughs) it's like not sure well I didn't really know how it was gonna end and then the ending I'm like I'm glad maybe it's not a bad ending it just felt a bit you know yeah her mum appears and then she gives birth (laughs) and then she gets sent to a convent after the convent with you I did like oh but okay funny as well is the bit when um the mum's like, who did this to you? And she's like, Beau Plaisir. And he's like, I've never spoken to your daughter before, madam. <laughs> he's like, no, no, never met her. Like, again, that, like a film, you know, um, that Whit Stillman, um, Love and Friendship, like imagine mm-hmm. that sort of adaptation of this, I think like super yeah. dry and just like, oh, madam, I've never spoken to your daughter before. And then he's like, oh. <laughs> Silly man, you've had sex with well, her. Well, it's also many times. It's very like visual too, right? Yeah. Like you can tell Haywood is a a playwright because mm-hmm. you're like, oh, all these costume changes yeah. and like she's putting on voices. You got set changes. It's like a whole wild like little farce, actually. Yeah. What a fun and entertaining way of talking about rape culture. Well, what's interesting is that actually Haywood does return to sort of, I mean, I guess what we would call rape culture time and time again throughout her career. So this is not the only piece that sort of like focuses on love and consent and female sexuality. That's actually kind of across the board with her. 
Um, I have linked to an article in our Facebook group that discusses this further. It is entitled Seduction or Assault, Eliza Haywood and the 18th Century Rape Culture of Today. Uh, there's just one little quote here that I'm going to read from this article. Although I just I really think the whole thing is good. And I like had trouble just picking out one little piece. <laughs> um, so this says throughout her work, Haywood stresses the dangers of a society that encourages women to be sexually attractive yet blames them for attracting sexual assault. Her characters struggle against the label of whore for saying yes, but liar for saying no. They bloom unseen at home, but spoil themselves by leaving. They live in a world where sleeping can be an invitation for sex. Fantamina mm-hmm. or Love in a Maze is perhaps Haywood's most intriguing example of amatory fiction, and it provides a good case for understanding the similarities between contemporary rape culture and the sexual conventions of the 18th century. So again, that is in our Facebook group. I highly recommend yeah. like the whole article. It's fantastic. And of course, we did share this in the Facebook group. And so we did have some really good thoughts on the text. Uh, Lauren, do you want to dive in with one of those? We've pulled a couple. Yeah. So Elizabeth N. said, As implausible as the story seems, there are certain conventional ideas contained therein. One, men's perpetual interest in sex. Two, the idea that women are interchangeable as sexual partners for men because men don't really see women as individuals. Men's search for novelty and variety in sexual partners. Three, the idea that society constrains the sexual freedom of women. Fantamina is able to carry on her stratagems only when unsupervised by her aunt, which she's unsupervised quite a bit. Yeah, the whole book. (laughs) By the way. (laughs) Not book. And when her aunt finds out, she's she's punished by being sent to the convent. So the fantasy of sexual freedom is deeply appealing, but can only ever be a fantasy. Yeah, I really liked that point about, you know, sexual freedom is deeply appealing, but can only ever be a fantasy. And yeah, I think that's like a very fitting remark on this on this piece, even if even if she doesn't get punished uh, in the sense that we think of it as being like a straight punishment, she's still separate from you know, like the child that she's just yeah, had. Yeah. She's sent away from her family. She's sent away from her friends and her lifestyle, her wealth, her convenience, you know, all yeah, of yeah. all of she, these things. She doesn't have that in the in the convent. Yeah. And um, I mean, there's no real consequences for Bo, right? No, none. Exactly. And so, so yeah. Joy says that she couldn't get behind bees leaving her in the lurch uh, at the end of the story because if Beau Plazier had an ounce of sense he would totally jump at the chance to marry Fantamina she's a perfectly mm-hmm. proper and admired in public and a freak in the sheets you get both the virgin and the horse stereotypes but Beau Plazier is clearly very stupid and considers women to be interchangeable based on the ease which, with which Fantamina fooled him so he doesn't actually value her abilities also, he perhaps correctly perceived that if she got tired of him sexually, she would and could totally cheat on him and do it so cleverly he would never know. But still, Beau don't let this amazing woman be trapped in a monastery. Agreed. I don't think anyone should let her get trapped in a monastery. She'd be having sex with all the monks. <laughs> all right, guys, we have one more read along before the end of our season, which is rapidly approaching the end of times end of times um and that is uh, an elizabeth gaskell short story we're going back to one of our favorites we are going to be reading the old nurse's story we're kind of bookmarking the season with elizabeth gaskell yeah we are aren't we book ending book ending not book ending We are, aren't we? Yeah. Gosh, it feels like a million years ago that we read Wives and Daughters, doesn't it? It does. Wow. We read a lot this year, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Great. It's perfect. Um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to read some spooky stories. If you guys uh, read any more of her gothic tales and want to talk about them, you can do that in our Facebook group. Got a thread already posted up there for you. And Hannah, where can they find that thread? 
You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at bonnets at dawn. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can find us in Facebook by searching bonnets at dawn and answering those little pesky I'm not a robot questions. And then we'll let you in. Yeah, sounds good.